We welcome you, our guests, to the inaugural installment of Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. Our hope and intent is to provide a glimpse into the remarkable life adventures, perspectives, and wisdom from a nonogenarian life well lived. Before our program begins, I would like to further introduce you to our central figure, as well as provide a brief synopsis of his life to date. Robert A. Johnson was born in 1928 with a childhood spent in Fairport, New York. Losing his father to a progressive illness as a boy, he was raised by his mother, a strong, colorful, yet complicated woman of her time. Intellectually gifted, Bob earned a scholarship and then a degree from Harvard University. During his time in Boston, he also earned the affections of Miss Suzanne Stone, who would ultimately become his wife of 67 years. He proudly served in the U.S. Army, thereafter entering into a corporate career in the insurance industry and rising to the level of executive vice president. Bob and Suzanne chose to raise their family in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, resulting in four highly successful daughters, four grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. Throughout this time, he has served on multiple corporate, civic, educational boards and commissions, as well as completing a graduate degree. In retirement, he has authored and published two novels and co-edited a third book of historical importance. Currently within his 91st year, Bob remains vibrant, engaged, and active within his family and retirement community, seemingly undeterred by some physical limitations. A remarkable man, an influential life, and very important stories to share. We welcome all to Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. Today's segment and episode one is entitled Human Guinea Pig for America. It is with great pleasure that I present your mentor and host, Bob Johnson. Boy, with an introduction like that, I'd certainly better make this good. What I'm going to talk about today in this uh, first of our uh, uh, podcast uh, presentations is the time when I was a human guinea pig and uh, didn't know it at the time and didn't really tumble to the fact until many years later. I blame it all on Harry Truman, who was president of the United States at the time, which tells most of you that uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, it's kind of popular these days to write uh, uh, expose books uh, with titles like uh, I was an agent for the CIA by Anonymous or 
Uh, no, I did not have sex with that woman by Wiley Clinton, or uh, I was a speech coach for uh, Donald Trump uh, by, uh, I'm a failure, as I recall it, uh, the uh, author. Uh, please don't look for any of those books in your bookstore. I just made those up. But it's popular these days to talk about things that happened many years ago that uh, uh, bear expose at this point, And that's what I'm going to do. Uh, before I uh, roll on into the actual event in which I was treated as a human guinea pig by the U.S. government, uh, for the uh, historically challenged, I might just mention a little background. Uh, first of all, uh, during the uh, closing days of World War II, the uh, United States and Britain, uh, which had been coordinating on a, uh, a research project, managed to produce a bomb which was uh, capable of of, of destroying 10,000 times as much as any bomb in, in available at the time. Uh, it was going to use the power of the uh, splitting of the atom to do that and produce that much power. It was called the Manhattan Project. It lasted during much of the war, uh, only wrapped up as the war in Europe was ending in uh, April of uh, uh, 1945. The uh, uh, we didn't know at the time, but the uh, Soviets uh, had a couple of spies working on the Manhattan Project as well, which had some interesting implications later on. Uh, the bomb was, uh, that was number one bomb, which was tested in uh, New Mexico uh, in uh, about the time they produced it, uh, in the uh, middle of 1945. And uh, it uh, just about uh, glazed most of the desert in uh, New Mexico in a very remote area. The scientists were all uh, adorned with uh, all kinds of protective gear and eye protection, and some of them were in trenches because they didn't know what this bomb was going to do, and it gave a very satisfactory explosion, uh, vaporizing the tower on which it was located, as I said, half of uh, New Mexico. So the second bomb, we uh, wanted to end the war with Japan, which was continuing and was going to cost uh, several million more lives to wrap up, as far as we could tell. Uh, that one, uh, we wrapped it up by dropping the second bomb on Hiroshima on August 6 of 1945, killing approximately 100,000 Japanese civilians and a few soldiers and sailors. And uh, three days later, dropping the, our third bomb on uh, Nagasaki, uh, Japan, killing, I believe, something like 80,000 Japanese uh, civilians and a few soldiers and civilians, just to make a point that we could destroy Japan if we so chose with this new weapon and would they please surrender, which they promptly did. Interestingly enough, that uh, second bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was originally intended to be dropped on Kokura, Japan, but it was a cloudy day in Kokura, so our uh, plane went and dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, which uh, shows that a Sunny day in Nagasaki is, can be a downer. At any rate, the, uh, the war ended shortly thereafter. Japan sued for peace and it was, it, the war was over and uh, a great many million lives were saved by the sacrifice of those uh, couple of hundred thousand Japanese people. Many people have uh, debated the morality of using the bomb on civilians, but uh, considering the number of people whose lives were saved both Japanese and American, it was, in the opinion of those who count lives, uh, the right thing to do. So with that as background, interestingly enough, the Soviet Union, which had been our ally up until now, 
had a very different political system. They intended that the rest of the world were going to have their political system. And very quickly, the Soviet Union and the United States became adversaries. And because the Soviet Union had uh, uh, involved spies in our Manhattan Project, they very quickly uh, developed their own version of our atomic bomb and then went on to work on a hydrogen bomb, which was many more times as powerful. So what was really a Cold War started and a uh, really a race to develop weapons of mass destruction as fast as either side could because the United States and the Soviet Union were now adversaries and uh, whoever gained the upper hand might very well decide to destroy the other one. It's hard to believe uh, in today's context, but the Cold War was a very serious matter. Okay, now we jump forward to uh, getting Bob Johnson involved in all of this. The time was October 1951. The war in North Korea was raging. That was kind of an offshoot of the Cold War. Uh, and many people call it the Forgotten War because uh, it, although it lasted three years, we called it a police action. And uh, some 35,000 or so American boys and women died in that war, and many more were uh, wounded. Uh, and uh, the war, as I said, lasted three years, having begun in July of uh, uh, 1951, uh, 50, and uh, ending in uh, July of 1953. Although it never really ended, they just had a truce, and uh, nobody, they've never been solid peace signed after that war. So at any rate, in October of 1951, I was a lowly PFC in the United States Army. That's about as low as you can get, stationed down in Fort Hood, Texas, as part of the 1st Armored Division. And uh, I was expecting the possibility, strong possibility, of being called up any day, as many of my friends were, to go fight in Korea. Then one day, in a morning formation, uh, which we had every morning about six o'clock in the morning when everybody was pretty bleary-eyed, the sergeant said, Johnson, you're going to report to company headquarters and see the captain. Our company commander, he has a message for you. Well, I assumed on the spot that I was headed for Korea with that kind of a message. So I appeared promptly on, uh, on site uh, at the appointed hour, and the captain said, uh, Johnson, uh, you're going out to Nevada to observe an atomic bomb explosion. And I said, oh, and he said, yes, and uh, here are your rail tickets. Uh, it will take you out to uh, Las Vegas, and then a bus will pick you up and take you up to the proving ground. And you're leaving tomorrow, which I thought was kind of short notice. But uh, then I said, well, uh, uh, are other members of our company going to be going, sir? And he said, uh, no, just you. And I said, well, how about the 1st Armored Division? How many of People are coming from our division. He said, oh, you're the only one. And I said, uh, could you tell me why I was picked for this, sir? And he said, no, I haven't the slightest idea. The thought crossed my mind that maybe the Army figured I was the one they could most easily do without if they were going to send me out to see an atomic bomb test. At age 23, which I was at the time, you know you're bulletproof, but you don't really know whether you're atomic bomb-proof. But uh, in the Army, you learn to do what you're told, as anybody who's ever been knows very well. And so the next day, I was uh, with a ticket clutched in my hand and a certain amount of apprehension, 
uh, on the way to Nevada. After changing trains in uh, uh, California, I wound up in Las Vegas, where indeed there was a bus waiting, not to just take me up to the proving ground about 90 miles north of Las Vegas, but also a number of other soldiers uh, who I happened to see, and all of them were either PFCs or corporals or, or even just plain privates. So we were a bunch of people who weren't quite sure what was happening to us or why, but we were on the way. I think there were probably about 25 or 30, I don't recall having counted at the time. And uh, we wound up in a place called Camp Desert Rock, which was really just a bunch of tents out in the middle of the desert, uh, some uh, 15 or 20 miles from the actual proving ground, which was known as Frenchman's Flat. Uh, we kept expecting somebody to give us an orientation on why we were there, what they fed us. They gave us sleeping bags to keep us warm in that cold desert night and uh, said, well, well, we'll we'll keep you posted on what's happening. Uh, the next day, a, a low-grade low officer, probably a second lieutenant, uh, said we were going on the following day after that to uh, go out to a Frenchman's flat, and we were going to observe an above-ground test of an atomic bomb the same size as the one that was used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, someone said, uh, how close are we going to be to this bomb, sir? And he said, I think it's about seven miles. And uh, he made it sound like a long distance, but in the cold desert, uh, seven miles looks like just a few paces. At any rate, uh, uh, he said, oh, and by the way, Tonight, we're going to send you all down on the bus to Las Vegas again, and you can have some fun before tomorrow's test. And it occurred to me, having studied a bit of Roman history, that that's what they did with the gladiators the night before they were to be sent out to die in the Colosseum. They'd send them down for wine, women, and song. Uh, and uh, that was the last uh, night of their life in many cases. And uh, that was an uncomfortable uh, thought in my mind, but I didn't share it with my my uh, other friends and, uh, who were as equally bewildered as I was. So that night down to Las Vegas, they took us, and uh, I managed to do something that's almost impossible for a single young man in Las Vegas. I got bored. Uh, I was uh, scheduled uh, to be married to a wonderful woman up in Boston in a couple of months if I didn't have to go to Korea. So I uh, really was... Uh, had a couple of beers. I did a little bit of gambling at the tables and broke even. I think I probably ventured a dollar at a time. And uh, then after discussing the weather with some people at the bar, I went back to the bus station and waited for the ride back to Camp Desert Rock. Uh, on the ride back, I did hear some very interesting uh, tales from some of my associates who, uh, unlike me, uh, had... Uh, found a lot of interesting diversions in Las Vegas, and they all wanted to talk all about it. It was kind of a fun ride. Next morning, 6.30, out of bed, quick breakfast, hop into the trucks, still in the dark of the uh, desert morning, and uh, we had a ride out to what was known as the observation point for the test at Frenchman's Flat. Interestingly enough, if anybody doubts all of the story, all you have to do is look it up. I think you could probably Google it and find uh, something called uh, Buster Jangle. That's what the, the code name for the series of tests of which our group was one. I think we were one of the earlier ones because when we had asked what kind of 
of protective gear are we going to have while watching this, like the scientists had when they uh, set off that first bomb. They said, oh, well, you don't need any protective gear. You don't need any extra sunglasses or you don't need any uh, vests. And uh, we said, are we going to be in trenches? No, you're going to be standing out on, a, on, a, on the desert uh, watching this happen, uh, which struck us as a little unusual, but maybe they decided that bombs weren't as dangerous as we thought they were. So we rode on our truck uh, trucks out to the location, unloaded from the truck, and again, as the second lieutenant said, okay, there's ground zero down there. We In the clear desert area, we had no trouble making out the fact that they had parked some trucks and uh, tanks and uh, had some tents and everything at what was supposedly ground zero. It looked uncomfortably close. I did try to entertain some of my associates with uh, stories of how many people were killed in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Not one of them had the courtesy to thank me for what I considered to be pretty useful information. And uh, then as the sun rose behind us and it uh, became daylight, we heard a plane going coming along in the distance. It was going to be dropping this bomb for a uh, air uh, detonation at 1,000 feet above ground zero. We had a few jokes about uh, hoping the bombardier knew what he was doing and wouldn't drop the bomb on us instead, but he did manage to drop it right over ground zero. We were told to turn away and look at, away from the uh, ground zero at one point. And uh, when we did, all of a sudden the, the whole world lit up like a, uh, a million flash bulbs had gone off. And then after about 10 seconds, he said, okay, turn. Now, if you wanted to see what a fireball looks like 10 seconds after it has exploded, uh, hold a, your fist out in front of your face about, uh, oh, six inches. And you'll see about the size of the fireball, which looked like a million suns, very, very bright, in total dead silence. Not a thing was said. We all just stood there in awed silence. And this fireball kept getting bigger and bigger. Pretty soon it started pulling up the desert air, and then it developed into the mushroom cloud, or began to develop into the mushroom cloud. You've probably all seen in photographs and on television. And all of a sudden, the shockwave hit us. And I did a quick calculation at about a thousand feet per second for sound to travel. It took about 30 seconds, which kind of confirmed the fact we were about seven miles from ground zero. And some of the fellows fell down. Uh, the others, uh, managed, we managed to keep our feet. And we just stood in awed silence after that big explosion, watching this mushroom cloud go up and up and up. Most beautiful colors I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and uh, it went off to the right. It did not come toward us, I'm happy to say. Oh, the next thing that happened after the detonation is they trucked us uh, not back to our tents, but down to ground zero. And uh, we unloaded and wandered around that ground zero area, which must have been highly radioactive at the time. Uh, saw they d destroyed tents and uh, trucks. The tanks had, just, had suffered some damage. There was even a flock of sheep with their backs burned totally black, and we were glad we were not that close to ground zero. And finally, after about 30 minutes of uh, wandering around, uh, just so we could see what had happened, uh, we were loaded back on the trucks, taken back to uh, Camp Desert Rock, and loaded into a bus. No, no debriefing of any kind. The bus took us back to Las Vegas. We all got on our trains, and we all went back to our respective posts all over the United States, 
never having any idea why we were picked for it or what we were supposed to do with the information we'd gotten. And uh, nothing happened. Uh, so I went on and uh, had a good uh, Christmas leave a couple of months later. I married that wonderful girl to whom I'm still married uh, 67 years later and uh, went on to uh, what I thought was a pretty decent career in the Army, winding up as a sergeant when I was discharged in 1953. Never had to go to Korea, which I did not uh, mind a bit. It was interesting to me that nobody had ever told us what was supposed to happen or why this all was done. And uh, to send a bunch of low-level uh, soldiers out to uh, watch a bomb go off didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because there was a certain amount of expense involved in all of this. Well, uh, about two years after I returned to civilian life, I got a letter from the Atomic Energy Commission, or at least one of their uh, offshoots, it might have been a medical branch of the Atomic Energy Commission, asking me how I was doing. Uh, and it was a long questionnaire. And if you read between the lines, it was really saying, uh, do you have leukemia yet? Or uh, what kind of cancer are you suffering from? And I had to report, I, or was happy to report, I didn't have any of those things. And uh, then a couple of years later, I got another questionnaire, which is essentially about the same thing. And they followed me up for maybe 10 years after that. And about that time, I began to realize, I think I was a guinea pig. They wanted to know what happened to people who were uh, at a, what might be a reasonable or might not be a reasonable difference from ground zero. I did get one letter from the uh, Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, it's the very last one I ever got. And at that point, they said that the incidence of cancer in uh, those who had been in the Buster Jangle series in Nevada back in 1951 was not appreciably above that of the normal expectation. And I always wondered what they really meant by that, not appreciably above, because it kind of suggested that maybe there was a bit more cancer or other after effects of our observation that... Uh, uh, came through. Fortunately, none of that ever seems to have affected me. I often wondered what it would have been like to uh, have a chance to get together with some of the other men that were with me at the time, at least those of us who survived, and uh, have a chance to compare notes and say, how are you, how are you feeling these days? And do you have any problems? Uh, but uh, that was never an opportunity, and I guess it's a hopeless uh, thought at this point. So at this point, uh, the epilogue, I guess, would be uh, uh, I've had no further uh, expectation or problem uh, with my own health. Uh, I did get some uh, macular degeneration, but uh, my uh, ophthalmologist says it had nothing to do with anything that might have involved an atomic bomb. On the world scene, it didn't take too long for the world to begin to realize that all of this above-ground testing that the Soviet Union and the United States and then some other countries as they developed their own nuclear weapons, were doing, and they were polluting the world with radioactive material. And so uh, did they stop testing atomic weapons? No. They just decided uh, in an international agreement they would move them underground. So the testing of uh, atomic weapons and weapons of mass destruction and weapons to kill people uh, continued, and as far as I know, continue to this day. Uh, I've been told that North Korea, that uh, sometimes considered to be a rogue nation, which we still are arguing with, uh, is uh, doing above-ground testing, but uh, uh, that's about the only one that I've heard of. 
So I guess that would really wrap up my story of the time I was uh, a guinea, human guinea pig. It was only in recent years it really occurred to me that, gosh, there was no reason in the world for me to be out there on that desert watching the tarantulas and the rattlesnakes roll by my feet, uh, except uh, to see what happened to somebody who was totally unprotected at a distance from an atomic bomb explosion. And uh, I guess that would wrap up my story. We may have uh, other podcasts in the future on some other subjects, uh, such as, yes, you can write that book about uh, uh, what you always have been thinking about writing about. And it's going to be very easy, and I'll try to make it easy for you. And maybe another one about what it's like to get to be old. On that happy note, I'll conclude. This concludes episode one of Senior Moments with Bob Johnson, available on your devices through iTunes podcast selections. Today's music selection is entitled Smooth Lovin' by Kevin McLeod and is available at incomputech.com. We thank you for listening and invite you back for further installments. For Bob Johnson, this is technical support, Mr. Ivy, bidding you farewell till next time.